This morning we continue our series exploring the character of God. Really it's this question about whether or not we can truly know who God is. And really I would venture to say that after coming up with this series, I don't think that character of God is really the best descriptor for this series because we're exploring more than just simply his character. It's his nature, who he is in his entire being. But as we think about this, we have to ask ourselves the question, why is it even relevant? Why have we even begun this journey to know who God says he is? And so to be honest, it kind of started on Christmas Eve. And it was on Christmas Eve that we opened our scriptures to speak about and talk about Jesus, who Jesus was, what his incarnation meant to all of creation and to humanity. And as I was wrapping up that Christmas Eve message, there was one conclusion that I wanted us to come to, one thing that I wanted us to understand, that Jesus is the very best thing that has ever happened to us. Jesus is the very best gift that we've ever received, that there is nothing greater that's ever been done for us, nothing greater that's ever been given to us, and nothing greater that we could ever experience than Jesus himself. And so we started that journey then, kind of thinking back when we started this journey of who was at the nativity and in the person of Jesus. But then I started to realize as we began in thinking this journey that at any given moment that I might not or you might not believe that statement. You might not believe that Jesus is the greatest thing ever given to us because our thoughts might not reflect that belief. The way we carry out our lives might not reflect that belief that Jesus is the best thing that ever has happened for us. And that might be because we just don't have the right thinking about who Jesus is. And for that matter, we might not have the right thinking about who God is. And so in order to open this up a little bit, I want to read a quote from A.W. Tozer, who says this in regards to our thoughts about God. This is what Tozer says. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or based as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most uh, important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So in other words, there can be no greater thought that a person can have than to have a thought about God. And then furthermore, there is no important thought that can be then to watch the degree at which we think about God. And the degree by which we have a thought 
of God then expresses itself in our worship of him. So let me simplify that a little bit more. If your thoughts of God are inferior thoughts, then your worship of him will be inferior. But if your thoughts of God are superior thoughts, then your worship of God will be superior. So the higher at which we think of who God is, the more expressive and higher our worship toward him will be. But if we have low thoughts of who God is, then our worship will be low. It will not be as expressive as to who God truly is. And so last week we started with this singular trait on God's immutability. And I began there because I think understanding that God is unchanging sets us up for every other character trait, every attribute that we look at next. Because if we think God can change, then that can mean that anything that we look at going forward means it would be irrelevant at some point in time. Because if God is changing, then at one point, if we say God is loving, then there might be a time when God is not loving. But if God is unchanging, then he will always be loving, and that cannot change. And so we began with saying that God is immutable, that God does not change who he is. Therefore, God can never be worse than he is, and he can never be better than he is. He is already perfect which makes him a good God. And so as we continue on this series on the character of God, I figured that the best way to know about God for us, right, is to, to hear what he says for himself, right? If you wanted to get to know me, the best way that you could get to know me is to hear what it is that I say about myself and then see it demonstrated in my life, right? So if I say that I'm a caring person, I can say that about myself, and then you could actually witness whether or not I'm caring or not, right? And so that's how we're going to kind of unpack our scriptures as we go through these traits of who God says he is. And so we're going to start in the book of Exodus chapter 34, and that's going to kind of be our thematic verse during this series, is we're going to keep returning to Exodus chapter 34, specifically verses 5 through 7, every week to see who it is that God says about himself. And then when we realize what it is that God says about himself, then we're going to go find somewhere else in scripture where we, we can actually see that on display, where we can see that character of who God is in the rest of scripture. And so today we're going to start in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, and that's on page 76 in your pew Bible, if you want to go ahead and turn to that. And so here we're going to see what it is that God says about himself. This is Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, him being Moses, and God stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." 
Let's go ahead and take a moment and pray before we go any further. Good and gracious God, as we gather before you today, Lord, yes, we come with heavy hearts, but I also come with excitement, God. And I hope we come with excitement too in our hearts to learn more about who it is that you say that you are and that in hearing who it is that you are, God, our souls would be revived. Our hearts would be lifted of whatever heavy burden we might be carrying, whatever burden we might have carried into this place. And we get to see you for who you are, that you are this God worthy of praise and honor and glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And so, God, meet us in this place by the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our minds and our hearts to your word this morning as we grow in our wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of who you say you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, In hearing this verse this morning, it it might sound familiar to you. You might feel like somehow you might have read this passage before somewhere in Scripture. You might feel like you've heard someone say it before. Maybe if you've ever hung around some, some Jewish friends, this is a very common Scripture that maybe they might repeat but, but really specifically, we have heard before, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These, these words ring somehow in our minds true, like we've heard them somewhere before. And maybe it's not because we've read this specific verse, but here's what we need to understand. This is the most alluded to verse in all of Scripture. It's the one that biblical authors have gone to more and more and more than any other verse in the Old Testament. And so when you think that you might have heard this verse before, it's because you might have seen it somewhere else in your reading of the New Testament or in some other book uh, in the Old Testament. Maybe in the prophets you heard these words kind of come out of what they were saying. Maybe it was a psalm you were reading because David has used this language over and over and over again in his psalms. It is maybe then, because it's so widely used by every biblical author, it might be then one of the most important passages in all of Scripture for us to know, to see, to understand. If it wasn't important, then all these biblical authors would have just ignored it, right? They would have just gone over it, and they wouldn't come back to it over and over and over again in their own writings in the own things that they have to say, in the, own, in the things that, that God is trying to communicate to us. And so then we have to ask ourselves, why has this been used over and over and over again? Why is it so important? Well, I think we've kind of already established that it's important because it is what God says about himself. It's how God describes himself. And so if God is taking the time to describe who he is, then we, as his created people, might want to pay attention. And so in this verse, we can start to see and unpack several different traits of who God says he is. 
And today we're going to focus on one of those traits. And it actually comes in verse 5. And it's not actually what we see in what he says about himself. It's actually what he does in that very moment. What the author says God does is actually a trait of who God is. And so let's read that verse again. Verse 5. It says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And so as we begin to unpack these traits, the first trait that stands out to me, it's not in what God says about himself. It's what God does in order to come tell Moses about himself. It says in that verse that the Lord descended. The Lord descended. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean that God descended? Where did God descend from, right? I mean, obviously, in our minds, we can only assume that God descended from heaven, right? That's, that's immediately where our mind goes. God must have descended from somewhere, and that somewhere must be heaven. But we also know that if we got in a spaceship right now, you know, and took that ship up into the atmosphere and then kept going, do we hit heaven? Do we hit this place called heaven? So God didn't descend in quite a literal sense. And so that's what I want us to unpack this morning. What does it actually mean when it says that God descended? Where did he descend from? What does it mean to say that God descended? Furthermore, it's really implicitly implied. It's not explicitly stated that if God descended, that it must mean that he came from somewhere that is ascended, right? And so the word that we're going to really be focusing on today is this word, he's transcendent. He is a transcendent God. In our bulletins, it says lofty and majestic, which is just such a more beautiful way of saying transcendent in my opinion. But really the focus of today is this transcendent king. And so our real scripture today, our, our scripture that's going to help us see what we're seeing in Exodus comes from Isaiah chapter 6. That's on page 591 if you're in your uh, pew Bibles, if you want to go ahead and open to that passage. But we're going to open to Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah chapter 6 is from the prophet Isaiah. And he has this opportunity to actually be taken up and to enter into the throne room of God. And here is what Isaiah says in this passage. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You know, what's crazy is you might be reading that, you might be thinking, okay, like now we're getting somewhere. Now we're starting to see that this is a God who is just different, right? Like this isn't just some God created in the image of men. No, this is clearly a God that made men in his own image, And as we read this, the very first thing that stands out to me is that when Isaiah sees God, he sees God on a throne high and lifted up. One way that this could be translated is that he sees God on a high and lofty throne. And so when we hear these words that describe God, that is what we mean when we say he is transcendent. That is what we mean when we say this God is above. In fact, Wayne Grudem says this about transcendence. He says, very simply, this means that God is far above creation in the sense that he is greater than creation and he is independent of it. God is is just above creation and he is independent of it. He doesn't need to rely on creation because he is the creator of creation creation. Creation exists because he did it. And so he must have done it outside of creation itself. He's completely independent of it. But then it also says that he is greater than that creation, meaning that he is just above creation as it exists. He is greater. And then here's the thing. Here's the problem with thinking in those terms is that we start to think that somehow there's a hierarchy, like like there's, there's the created things and then there's this the angels maybe, which are also a created thing, and then there's God. And so I actually want to turn back to A.W. Tozer to help clarify this thought of this aboveness, this this greater than quality of God. And so this is what A.W. Tozer says, and bear with me because it's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it says it perfectly. He says, we must keep in mind that far above does not here refer to physical distance from the earth but to the quality of being. We must not think of God as the highest in an an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and then going up to a fish and then a bird to the animal, to man, to angel, to cherub, and then to God. This would be to grant God eminence or really even preeminence. But that is not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of that word. Forever, God stands apart in light, unapproachable. He is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, 
are nevertheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. If that sounded really complicated in ways, it's because it is. I mean, A.W. Tozer is one of those guys that when he writes, he makes you want to read it six or seven times because you're not quite sure whether you grasped it all. And this actually comes from his work called Knowledge of the Holy, which might be, it is like a book, no more than maybe a hundred pages, but it will take you a year to work through because it is just so dense. But I bring that up because I want to maybe try to bring a bit of clarity to what he's saying. That we can't stress enough the meaning of what he is saying. That to say that God is high and lofty, or even to say that God descended, is to use human reference for it because we actually don't have words to fully describe what it is that we mean. Because we are, we're bound by space and time. And so everything that we think about is in terms of space and time. But God is different in how he is distant from us. Like, think about it from my perspective as one that really hates to travel I really don't like traveling at all. And so I'm going to use some human metric for how much I hate traveling. If I'm trying to drive 15 minutes from uh, where I live to the other side of Griffin to pick up something from Home Depot, I think that's too far. <laughs> okay? But then there are also times that I am driving from here to Peachtree City to meet a friend, and that's 45 minutes away, and that's also too far. But then also there are these times when I drive from Griffin to Ohio to visit with family and about two hours in. So even though two hours is longer than the 15 minutes the other side of Griffin or 45 minutes to Peachtree City, around the two hour mark, I'm like, this is okay. And then around the two hour and five mark, I'm like, this is too far. Like, I'm not, I don't want to drive the rest of the five hours that it takes for me to visit family. It always feels like forever, no matter where I'm going, it never feels like I'm getting there fast enough. But even still, I know that I will eventually arrive there, even if it takes a little bit of time. So what does that have to do with God? Well, I would be very weary and very disappointed to learn that if I tried to get to God, the distance and chasm would be so great that even if I tried to drive for infinity toward God, there would still be an infinite amount of time between me and God to get to him. The chasm between man and God is so vast that it is beyond measure. It is impossible for us to traverse the distance from us to him. And so when we say God is transcendent, that is what we are talking about. We cannot reach him. We could never get to him. We could never have the quality of being that is God himself. He is completely above and apart from his creation. So let us take a look at what the possible responses that we have then to 
this transcendent God, right? Because it's not just enough for us to know that God is transcendent. Now, how are we supposed to relate to that transcendence, right? Because now I've just set us up into an impossibility. I can't possibly get close to God. And so how do I respond to that? Well, let's go back to our verse in Isaiah. Verse two in chapter six, it says, and above him, stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two covered his face, two covered his feet, and two he flew. And they called to another, one another, and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These angelic beings that we're speaking about here, they are the ones that surround the throne of God in day and night, and night and day is what Revelation says. They declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These beings who are in every kind of conceivable mindset are greater than us, they even understand the transcendence of God to a level that they spend eternity worshiping who he is. Remember that quote that I gave at the very beginning that A.W. Tozer said when he was talking about the very thought that we have of God, when he said worship is as pure or as base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God? Well, the thoughts that these seraphim have of, of God are far greater and beyond any thought that our human minds are capable of. And here they have these thoughts of God that are so high that they spend all of eternity saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What a magnificent cry that is. I mean, honestly, I... As human, I fail over and over and over again in my, my finitude, in my brokenness, in this creation. Like, there are days that I have these really great holy thoughts of God, and I am on it, and I am fire, and we are just going after the Lord, and I love him, and he is amazing. But then there are these days that, like, God just goes out the window, and he's out my brain, and... My thoughts of God are low. They aren't the first thing that I think about, and I don't have high thoughts, and therefore my worship of him is not high. And yet, these seraphim, day and night, their only thought is of how great God is, of his incredible transcendence. That's why they cry, holy, holy, holy. That word holy literally means to be set apart it's the apartness of God. He is so different, so vastly different from the angels. He's so vastly different from us humans. That is who God is. And so they cry, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. He is transcendent and other than any other being that ever was, is, or will be. Further, I want us to then look at the response that Isaiah has. So we've seen the response of these angelic beings, which should be our proper response when we have high thoughts of who God is. But then we have these, this encounter with Isaiah. And Isaiah says in verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My question for you and for me is, do I respond in that way toward God? That the way that Isaiah did in this this kind of reverence for him because we see him for who he truly is, this transcendent God who should in all intents and purposes strike us with awe and fear. To be able to respond and go, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. I really love the way that... uh, and I'm going to be probably corrected at uh, some point by Gunther because I'm going to say it wrong. But there's this poet named uh, Goethe. It's G-O-E-T-H-E. But I think it's like Goethe or something like Goethe, right? Okay. So there's this poet. And he said this. He was caught in a conversation with one of his, one of his friends. And he said this. People treat that name as if the incomprehensible and most high being who is even beyond the reach of thought were only their equal. Otherwise, they would not say the Lord God, the dear God, the good God. This expression becomes to them, and this is convicting, especially to the clergy who have it daily in their mouths, a mere phrase a barren name to which no thought whatever is attached. If they were impressed by his greatness, they would be dumb and through veneration unwilling to name him. I have to be honest, when I read that, I was like, oof. That was one of those moments where my heart just kind of sank into my stomach. And I'm like, how many times do I say the Lord God, good and gracious God? That's how I start most of my prayers in here is good and gracious God. But am I just saying that out of this repetition because I've said it so much? Because I just have this this thought and I'm like, okay, that sounds good. So I'm going to keep using that phrase to name who God is without actually spending any amount of time to let that name of God carry the weight and reverence with which it is due. And so when I have these prayer moments, I'm now convicted to think, how much do I really believe what it is I say when I say, the Lord God, good and gracious God, loving God. I don't want those words to end up becoming inert in my reverence toward God because I let their power escape me because I forgot the transcendence of who God is is. So I want us as a people, as a church, to be more mindful of what it is that we are saying when we pray, what it is that we are singing when we lift up one voice, what it is when we talk about him with our friends and our neighbors. Are we allowing God's transcendence to influence us in our very being? Paul said this to the Philippians in chapter 2. He said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I want us to rest in that, to believe in that, that there is this idea in which our faith, our belief in God is worked out in fear and trembling. When we think of the word awesome, it comes with this prefix of awe. Do we still have awe for who God is, who God says he is, Do we have the awe that Isaiah has that when he looked upon God sitting on his high and lofty throne, he fell on his face and said, woe is me. Woe is me. That is the transcendent God that we have. And that's how we need to start coming into a place of reverence of who he is. But I want us to be encouraged. I don't want us to just think that we are just so wicked and terrible that there isn't hope in knowing this transcendent God. Because if we remember at the very end of that passage in Isaiah, thank goodness it says that one of the seraphim flew to Isaiah and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my lips and said, behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. By the gracious work of God through his son, Jesus Christ, that is our call. Jesus is the call who atoned for our guilt and took sin away from us. And that's good news because as much as we talked about God's transcendence today, I want to leave you hopeful that next week, We're going to talk about his imminence. If transcendence is about how far away God is in his being, imminence is about how close he wants to be with you in his personal life, in your own being. That is the good news of who God is, both transcendent and we'll learn as imminent. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and the mercy that you have poured out on us. But God, as we come to you, Lord, let us within us, with every fiber of our our being, know you as transcendent so that we may revere you for who you are as a great and awesome God. And Lord, that we would work out our faith in fear and trembling as Paul has written for us to do. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.